Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This is, of course, the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. And today's a big show. Um, first off, I just want to give a big thank you. It's my 300th show. How in the name that Glenn Beck has given me 300 shows? I seriously don't know, but we're not going to tell anyone because it's our little secret. He, I've flown under the radar. But today's a special show. I've got my a very special guest, uh, part of the Blaze family, Dave Rubin. Thank you so much for joining me. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to be with you. Congratulations on 300. And I'm actually going to be in Dallas in a week or two. I will ask Glenn what the thought process was. No, 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 don't, don't. (laughs) We want, because we want there to be 350 and 400 and get to a big milestone. So, uh, well, in that case, I'll put in a good word, but let's see how this interview goes. You know, if you put in a good word, there's brown envelopes to your end. Don't worry. (laughs) So I wanted to talk to you about, um, because you have a great story. And I honestly think there's lots of people in America that people can learn from, but I think your story is unique. Um, and I think that you can actually share a lot to people like me to say, how can we actually solve a lot of these problems? So because of your story. So I wanted to start with you as, you know, not just in, we're going to talk about the issues today, but sort of go back to you as a child. You grew up in New York. What did yeah. young Dave, you know, going to high school, what did he want to do? What was his career ambition? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I come from a true New York liberal family. But when I say liberal, I mean that in the best sense of the word. I mean that in the JFK, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country sense of the word. We had a great senator when I was growing up, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a lion of liberalism and liberty, actually. We had guys like Mayor Ed Koch in New York City, who was a mayor for all people, didn't think the government was supposed to do absolutely everything. So when I say liberal in that sense, I was born in 1976. So my formative years were the 80s, you know, into the early 90s. I that's what I'm talking about then. And that obviously that definition of liberal obviously is very different than what modern liberalism means to most people. I did write, write a book trying to defend liberalism. But in many cases, as I now say, defending my liberal principles is becoming a conservative position or at very least a libertarian position. But to answer your question directly, I mean, I was a regular kid. I played video games. I, you know, I'd come home and I was playing old school Nintendo and Sega Genesis with, with my friends. And I was playing basketball, you know, for hours and hours after school every day. And I was always interested in politics, though. My, my family was nobody in my family was in politics per se, but everybody was political in that. We would argue about everything. I was always at holidays. I was always fighting to get to the adults table because I was I was the oldest of my generation. I'm the oldest between my my dad and his sisters, all the kids. So I always was trying to get away from the kids and I wanted to be in the action where the adults and they were arguing about everything. But I write about this in the book. I mean, one thing was for sure in my family, arguments would get very heated about politics. But then dessert was served and everybody was good. 
Nobody ever, I have no recollection ever in my family of anyone getting into a fight and storming out of the house. And, you know, that's going to be an irreparable relationship. There were other personal things that people would fight about, but politics never did that. And that, I guess, really did get ingrained into me that, you know, I'm sure we have some political differences. It's just irrelevant. You know, if you, if you basically believe, believe in liberty, if you basically believe in freedom and from an American context, if you basically believe that the American experiment is good, well, then we have a lot to talk about. And whether we agree on the marginal tax rate or even something as you know profound as abortion, that's actually not that important to me. Perfect. So then obviously then you grow up and you go to college and you kind of you start doing, I think 1998, you start doing stand up. And yeah. one of the fascinating things is doing the pro show prep was, which I never knew, was you actually interned on The Daily Show with John Stewart. So you're going down the comedic groups. What brought you to the comedic group? Was it the did you like performing in front of people? Were you the popular kid in high school or what, yeah. what sort of draw drew you to that sort of? Well, it's funny. I, I was never the class clown. Uh, you know, I was always in the back sort of making fun of the class clown to like a smaller group of people. That's the way I would describe it. Like I was making quips about the guy who was the clown, which I guess sort of makes sense in a context of what I do now of poking fun at these ridiculous people that we have as politicians, mostly. Um, as far as popularity, I, I always looked at it that I was kind of right in the middle there were sort of like the, the cool kids and, and that whole crew. And then there were like the, the nerds. And I could do a little bit of both. But I'm not kidding. I remember being in about seventh or eighth grade. And, you know, as I said, I loved video games. I loved comic books. I loved cartoons, all of that stuff. I've still got plenty of I got I've got some comic books over there. I've got some of my old toys over there. I remember thinking, man, it's going to be work to be in the popular crew. I'm going to have to dress a certain way. And, you know, talk a certain way and all that. And I was like, I like my nerd friends and I like video games and all that stuff. So I was more in line with that. And I remember sort of having to to make a choice in a in a weird sense. You know, that's just one of those things about growing up and finding friends and everything else. But as far as performing, I never wanted to perform or anything. My last day of college, uh, I was in a public speaking class and I had to give a talk. I just they said you could talk about whatever you want. I said, all right, I'm going to do five or ten minutes on what it was like to be in college for four years. And at the time, my comedy hero was Bill Cosby. This was before he was the, you know, biggest serial rapist of all time. And if you remember in 1983, he did a special called Bill Cosby himself. That was, that's really his like, just perfect. To me, it's like the perfect stand-up special. And, and many comics, Jerry Seinfeld, many others have said it's basically the most perfect stand-up special there is. He sits on a stool and he just tells stories. And, and I remember seeing that in 83, I was seven years old buckled over and laughing, just could not believe that anything could be that funny. And I thought, why wouldn't you want to make people laugh? And, and that's basically what I did at that, at that public speaking class. And then about a week later, I was home back at my parents. I needed a job and I thought, all right, I'll be a comedian. I thought you just do stand up for a couple months. Next thing you know, you're on the tonight show, you get a sitcom and you know, you're, you're Ray Romano or Tim Allen. That's it. Little did I know it takes a lot more than that, but I started doing open mics. I, I ended up actually opening a couple comedy clubs with comedians where we would hand out tickets. We would split the profits, did stand up in New York with all the uh, successes and failures of that, did the road for a while. And, uh, and the funny thing is now, you know, I don't need stand up. So when I do it, you know, when I was on tour with Jordan Peterson, when I was in Ireland and, and some of the other places, if we have off nights, I can sell out the club because I'm, I'm popular enough now because of this, which is great. And then when I get up there, it's not that I have to have a hundred jokes and drub them over the head. I'm just up there. They're like, oh, there's Dave on stage. And then it's to me, it's just let's have fun. 
So I, I can enjoy it now in a way because I don't need it, which I think is a pretty powerful statement. Yeah, and I'd say you've, not to get off topic because I didn't want to talk to you about the issue today, but I'd say you've seen comedy go through such a, a change because I love comics. I, and I'll be honest, I've never seen Bill, that Bill Cosby especially talk about. For me, when you, because I'm in Ireland, obviously different culture. When you think of yeah. Bill Cosby, you think the Cosby show and pretty much that's it. And sure. for, me, for me, you know, it's sad what has come out about him because for me so long, you know, he was America's dad. And, you know, we're going to talk about race later on in the show, but it's so sad how far your country has gone and kind of in the wrong direction where I grew up as, you know, if you want to, I don't consider myself white, but, you know, I grew up the, the tasty white Irish guy loving America and seeing this guy as a black guy as America's dad and nothing like no one ever went, hmm, why is America's dad? It was just, huh, normal you're, you're people getting... No, you're on a great point. It's so important, actually, because I remember, as I said, 1983, I'm seven years old. I see this guy. It didn't it was it had nothing to do with him being black. He was funny. He was just funny talking about his family, his kids talking about work, all of these things. It was just hilariously funny. And you're right. Then the Cosby show came out, I think, probably around 1984. I think it was on from about 84 to 90, something like that. And it was the number one show in America for four or five years. The last couple of seasons weren't great. But the point of the show, in essence, was that he was an obstetrician, right? He was OBGYN. His wife was a lawyer. They lived in Brooklyn in a seemingly upper middle class neighborhood. They cared about education. They cared about family, all of these things. And nobody cared. There, there was nothing. You know, they actually did a few little shows that had a, a, an ancillary thing about race more towards the end of the show, not very much at the beginning. But everyone in America embrace them. Now, the irony is, if right now on NBC primetime, eight o'clock on Thursdays when the show was on, if they put that exact same show on right now, you know who would be hating it? It would be the left because yeah. the left would say this is not a representation of, a, of black people in America. But you're not going to believe this, Jonathan. There are black OBGYNs in America. There are black lawyers in America and they have families and they're successful. And that is why. What, what the modern left, the woke left, and the BLM crew have done is so deeply dangerous. Absolutely. And from as an outsider, you know, like it's I, I try and I really struggle and reconcile how bad racism has become in your country in the sense of I, like, I'm, you know, I'm 30 in my late 30s. So we're, we're of a similar age. I grew up watching the Cosby show. He was America's dad. I grew up. I remember watching, I actually just watched a video and I was crying earlier this week. I took a few minutes out watching Tiger Woods win his first Masters. Uh, watching that, watching Michael Jordan doing the three piece, retiring, crying over his retirement. Then wait, can I tell you? Let, wait, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. But I got to tell you because '92, when when he beat the Blazers, you know the famous shrug. Clyde Drexler is my hero. Talk okay. about. I mean, I have a huge poster of Clyde Drexler in my gym. So that '92, when Jordan shrugged, that was ripping my heart out. But you're making a great point. We've moved past so much of this stuff. My my favorite female singer, Tina Turner, she's black. My favorite basketball player, black. My favorite comedian, black. It has nothing to do with the color of their skin. These are incredible people, incredible talents, incredibly passionate, wonderful, amazing people. And, and I'm telling you, I, and, and it may be hard from, from an outsider of America, the average person here is still not racist. They are not. Yeah. Oh, I agree. It, this, this is being driven by a really sick, twisted ideology. And what I actually do fear, though, is that the longer you keep telling people that they're racist just by the nature of their existence, the longer that, that, that BLM and the mainstream media keep pushing that white Christians are evil and, all, and the rest of it, you're going to start making racist people, not because they're innately racist, 
But because if the whole world keeps telling you you're horrible because of your skin color, you might actually start identifying very much on that. And and that is a that is a Pandora's box that they are opening right now. Absolutely. So what I love talking, and Glenn obviously loves talking about as well, but I'm always fascinated by people's lives. So that's why I wanted to start talking about yours and where we make pivots. So you go from stand-up comedian doing all these different things to 2007, you started talking about LGBT teen talk shows. So that's kind of a change, even though there's probably a bit of humor. I didn't get, I couldn't find anywhere over here to this. <laughs> a lot of sites are blocked because, you know, European yeah, regulations, yeah. I can't get it. So, but I'm guessing it's not more, it's more a bit more serious with a bit of fun in it. Why was that? Why did you decide to make, you know, go from on the stage to behind the mic? What was your pivot? Yeah. And what, or how did that opportunity well, come to you? You know, there were a couple things. Partly it was just purely because of the nature of the industry changing. So, you know, come late 90s now. So now I had done stand up for 10, 11 years. There was this idea, sort of, I hinted this before, that you could just do stand up for a little while. You'd get five minutes. You'd somehow sit down with Johnny Carson and you'd get a sitcom. Except Johnny Carson had retired back in 92. Jay Leno wasn't making stars. You know, there's the, there's the endless story. If, if you're a student of comedy, you know this. Yeah. Like, everybody would get on Johnny Carson. Ellen DeGeneres, Good Tim show. Allen, Jerry Seinfeld. If you, and if he liked you, Louis Anderson, Roseanne Barr, endless. If he liked you, you sat down with him, you were made. And what I realized was, well, Leno took over. And, no, and this isn't even a shot at Leno. It, that just, he didn't do that. That just wasn't his thing. And so what happened was a lot of the comedians that were a few years ahead of me, so like Colin Quinn, that, that crew of guys, um, they weren't getting out of the clubs anymore because they were supposed to have graduated past the comedy clubs and made it to TV and then hopefully got their gig, you know, on television, whatever it was. And they were still stuck in the clubs because nobody was moving. So I started realizing, man, it's going to be impossible to jump in front of these guys that there's just no way there's too many of them at the clubs. So I started thinking, well, what else can I do? And then I started looking into radio. That was just at the beginning when podcasts started. I didn't even know how to put a podcast on my phone, but I knew a guy who, who had some sense of what podcasting was. So we started podcasting. And, you know, I love I love talk, actually. You know, the fact that we're on video to me is a sep is a secondary thing. You know, you need it at some level just because people consume things in a certain way. Um, but if the cameras were off right now and, you know, I was dressed more normal to how I would dress on a normal day or, you know, if you weren't wearing the tie and we were just in T-shirts and I was sitting back a little bit more like you, the, in some ways, the ideas flow even more freely in that way. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the, obviously, there's a little bit of a entertainer piece to what we do. And I just saw the industry changing and I just thought, let me let me go in that direction. And then that opened up a lot of doors. So then your next pivot point is 2013, the, the Young Turks. You, you sign up. How, how, does that, how does that conversation go to join the Young Turks? You know, I was a lefty at the time. Um, I went and I it was the first time I had ever been in L.A. was in the fall of 2012. I did a show on the Young Turks and it was a little panel show. And when the show ended, some guy came up to me and he said, oh, you were great. You were great. I didn't know who he was. And I said, oh, I'd love to do a show with these guys. Or I think I said, you guys, I just assumed he worked there. So I'd love to do a show with you guys. And he said, OK, let's do it. It turns out that it was the CEO of the Young Turks. I didn't know who he was at the time. But basically, he was nice like, you know, we, play, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically, he was like, look, we can't pay you much. I mean, it was nothing. It was going to be like literally it was going to be like a thousand dollars a month. But, you know, if you move here, we'll, we'll help you with the studio. We'll figure out some stuff. We, we picked up, we drove cross country, threw the dog in the, in the car, 
and and then moved and, and started the show on the Young Turks. And at the time, again, I was still a lefty. I was a Bernie supporter. I mean, people find videos of me supporting Bernie and they say, oh, Dave, you flip flopper. You used to be. a." And it's like, no, I actually evolved, which is what people are supposed to do in life. You're not exactly you're not supposed to think the exact same things as you thought five, 10 years ago. It's called learning more. If you get new information, you can evolve on things. So I was there for about a year and a half. And then I saw, and I think in, I think 30 years from now, I'll look back on it, realizing what a gift it was. I saw how terrible the left was becoming because I was around it every day. I was on a channel. I won't even call them a news network because they're not news. I was on a pundit channel where Everyone they disagreed with was racist. Everyone they disagreed with was a homophobe. There was no analysis of the actual issues. They only played stories that fit their narrative. And I saw that over and over and over again. And then finally it did wake me up. And I suppose the rest is history. Absolutely. And like, you you know, if you, if you want to be known for one cool thing, like your whole career, you've been on the Young Turks and you've been on, I know you're on the place. Welcome to the family. And, <laughs> you know, that's, that's quite, <laughs> that's like, you know, if you ever get to the autobiography point of view, that's one hell of a story, you know, from, well, from you know, to the place. I'm, I'm sure, you know, the quote, you know, uh, I think they usually attribute it to, to Churchill, but you know, if you're not a liberal in your twenties, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative in your thirties, you have no brain. So, yeah. so my trajectory in that regard makes sense. But every now and again, you find people that go the other way that start off conservative and then become lefty. And you're like, something really went wrong here. Like, I don't know what the water was tainted with. Absolutely. And then just before we get to the issues and the ideology of the day, sure. which I really want to talk to you about, is I think there's a massive um, lack of talents or opportunity in our industry right now. Like obviously Rush left a, a gaping hole there, you know, 12 o'clock Eastern in your time. You know, I know a lot of young people who are your age or slightly younger who have got big ambitions. And I kind of, you obviously are bigger than all of us. You've got the name recognition. You just have to say Dave Rubin and, you know, either everyone loves you or hates you or, you know, but they know who you are. They know yeah. you for, oh, that's the Young Turks guy or that's the Blaze guy or whatever. What a piece of advice would you give to the young people who are like going, I just don't know if I want, I think I have something to say, but I don't know how to do it. You know, how would you, what would your advice be to those type of people? Do it, do it. At least for now, everybody can create a YouTube channel right now. If you've got internet access and you got a laptop and you got a camera, you can be on YouTube within 15 minutes and you can start saying what you think. And you got to forget about the numbers, forget about the numbers because that's not important. Figure out what it is, what are you saying that is unique, that is valuable, that is interesting, and just start saying it. And, you know, you may do 100 videos over the course of a year, and maybe they're only going to get three views each because it's your mom and your dad and you. But over time, if you're doing something good and valuable, somebody will see it and they might share it. And for all you know, two days later, you've got, you've got millions of views. And then what doors that opens up? are unimaginable. So you've got a chance, but there, there's no training course. You don't have to pay anyone to teach you how to talk. You don't have to pay anyone to teach you how to sit in front of a camera. You just got to start doing it. Just start doing it. I would also say on a technical side, learn a little bit. Now I have guys that do it for me. But one of the key things is, you know this, you can't just put up videos on YouTube with no metadata or any of that stuff. It's not the fun stuff, but learn a little bit about tagging your videos properly and things like that because otherwise they're never gonna get picked up by the algorithm. So you have to, that's like the unfun technical part, which as I said, I have guys that do it for me now, but like it can't, it's not gonna be just you saying something brilliant. If you say something brilliant and you say it 
you know, into the abyss, it doesn't matter. If you say something brilliant and you, you use the game properly, the algorithm and all that, you got a chance. Awesome. get to the issues of the day so there's i could talk to you there's so much things i'd love to talk to you about but i think one of the frustrating things for me is i just want to talk to you about america at large is and we, we briefly spoke about it earlier on where you kind of where you're giving out your views and you kind of go if you believe in america being fundamentally good and um, for me america's narrative has very much been lost and i would say this to both sides i got i this show is all about your founding principles i love your constitution i love your declaration of independence i think is the greatest document man has ever written um, your Bill of Rights on top of that is kind of like, hey, if you need this to be itemized, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, yeah. here it is. Um, you know, and there's so much, in, you know, things that you can look at in reading your founding documents. To people on the right, I, I, I really find this question struggling is, I can tell you all day long why America is an exceptional nation. I can give it to you factually. You may hate everything I say. But there's a reason you changed the world. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't by, hey, let's just see what happened. There were reasons. You followed nature's laws or basic first principles or nature's God, whatever way you want to describe them. Tell, tell me, in your words, why America is an exceptional nation. You gave me a lot there. Well, I, first off, I love the way you, you described that because they even gave us, they numbered it out for us, right? They were like, guys, guys, if, if all this, this stuff is a little confusing in the Constitution of the Declaration of Independence, how about we just enumerate a couple things for yeah. you? This First Amendment, pretty good. And why we put it first, there's a reason. And what's the second one? Well, that's about the guns because you're going to need the guns to defend the first one. Like they really did something so extraordinarily brilliant that you know, one of the sad things today is like, you know, our politicians, doesn't matter what side you're on, there are so few good, genuine politicians. There's a couple of guys I basically like. I basically like Ted Cruz. I basically like uh, Rand Paul. I basically like uh, Ron DeSantis, who I think is a very bright future. But, but we don't have great people who have a true understanding of the issues and why our country was set up and all of those things. I actually think, especially Rand Paul and, and Ted Cruz in that regard do, Ted Cruz, I think he's a constitutional scholar, actually, as well. And he, you know, he trained at Harvard Law under Alan Dershowitz. So he's got a great knowledge on all that. The, look, the founding principles of the United States are that you have God-given rights. The government did not give you those rights. And we can call them, you know, human rights or whatever. And that's sort of a different existential issue. But they said God-given rights. And the government is here to protect those rights. That's it. That's what the Bill of Rights is doing. That's what the Constitution is doing. It's protecting the rights that you were born with as your birthright as a human being. And, and most importantly, those are individual rights so that groups do not have rights. And what is happening now that's so depressing is that the left and the Democrats and all the way up to Biden, they are trying to usher in group rights. Black people should be treated a certain way. White people should be treated a certain way. Gay people should be treated a certain way. Straight people, et cetera, et cetera. Individual rights is the cornerstone of Western society. The, the idea that if you are a legal citizen of a country, but this is particularly unique to the United States, that you will be treated exactly equally as everyone else. Now, that does not mean that from our founding, they lived up to those principles. And by the way, if you read their writings, they knew it. They knew it. Thomas Jefferson knew it. He, he knew he was writing the laws to free the slaves later in his life as he still owns slaves. George Washington, 
who was not only our first president, but led the Revolutionary War, then voluntarily put down his power. He knew how important it was to say, I can't be president and also the general of the army, That how dangerous that is. Well, that's an extraordinary thing he did. But yes, he did own slaves until the day he died. And in his will, his slaves got freed, but Martha's slaves, his wife's, did not get freed. So they were all flawed people. But Jonathan, I'm flawed. You're flawed. And the documents that they set up led to 250 years of freedom that the world has never seen and maybe that the world will never see again. And maybe if this does not work out, was just a really incredible blip on an otherwise pretty bleak uh, you know, scale of history. So individual rights, liberty. And, and then, of course, you know, the line that really is so extraordinary is the pursuit of happiness. Not we can make you happy. I mean, everything that the left is selling now is, oh, if you just give us enough power, government will give you equity. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. No, the, the government can't make any of us happy. It's, it's very hard for any of us to make ourselves happy. What the government can do is get out of your way enough so you can pursue happiness. It's not a guarantee, but pursuit, that's pretty good. Absolutely. And that's the big difference. So, you know, that as someone who has tried to get into your country for 17 years, it's really hard to do it the right way. And, you know, for me, the, the poem... Oh, just come in through Mexico. Fly over to Mexico and then just swim that river. You're no, good. I'll put in a good I, word for you. <laughs> well, no, I, I've, had a, I've had a journey like Glenn offered me a job, couldn't get a visa. It, long, we, won't, we don't need to talk about that now. But, you know, for me, the, the words of America that always hit home were Emma Lazarus's poem on the Statue of Liberty, you know, because <laughs> that opportunity that you just spoke about isn't available everywhere else. You know, that you give me your tired, your weak, your huddled masses yearning to be free. That was the greatest insult to Europe at the time. And I love, one of the reasons I love it is because we live in this era where we have to insult everyone. Oh, you're a dummy, you're a moron. Whereas um, that back in those days, you didn't, you just insulted them with your words without calling them. That was a slam on Europe because it was saying, you know, all those people you think are undesirables and, you know, the lumpen proletariat, to quote Marx, you know, the second and third class citizens, the riffraff. Yeah, you bring them over here and I will give them an opportunity. And look at how many nations, Irish people, English people, Polish people, Russian people, Mexican people, all Asian people have come over there as their, their riffraff in their country. And then all of a sudden they get to America and look at what happens. And look at I what happens. And by the way, Jonathan, it's not as if when everyone's ancestors came here that everybody was treated so great. I'm sure I don't have to tell you how Irish people were treated when they came to America. And by the way, that's the exactly the same way that Italian people were treated and Asian people and Jewish people and Russian people. That, But yet what happened was once they got here, even though, yes, it was tense and you had different traditions and different foods and different languages and all of those things, they all started realizing, whoa, the opportunity of freedom is the much better thing. And then next thing you know, you've got places like New York City, where you have Irish and Italians and Jews, particularly. Those were the big three, sort of, and you know, talking about about 100 years ago, that all came and they came with nothing. All of them came, you know, the Italians came fleeing fascism. The, the Irish came fleeing famine, in essence. The Jews fleed pogroms. They all came, they had nothing, and they started building because they had freedom. And then suddenly they start realizing, boy, you know, as human beings, we kind of have something in common with some of these people. You know, the, the, Irish, the Irish eat their corned beef this way, the Jews eat their corned beef this way, but it's pretty damn close. And you know why they both eat corned beef? Because it's the worst cut, because it's all you could get. But if you soak it long enough in salt, it's going to be okay, pretty edible. And now I like corned beef. So, yeah. so there's such a promise of America 
And that's what we're erasing. So when people say, okay, well, look how racist we are towards black people or look how racist we are towards Hispanics. Well, first off, we don't have any laws that are racist. Are there individually racist people? Of course there are. There are. And by the way, the only way you get rid of those people is if you have Thanos and the snap, then you can get rid of a lot of people. And that's actually kind of what the left wants to do. But, but they're erasing history. Everyone comes here. And that's the thing. Why is nobody leaving? Why are you trying to get in still and nobody's leaving? Why is AOC still here? And the well, only, you know, they'll always, yeah, well, you're white, right. But, but why do they always tell you, you know, AOC, well, they'll, they'll always tell you, well, Sweden, the Nordic countries, they're doing it right. Well, first off, these are obscenely tiny countries in a very specific geographic region of the world that were largely homogenous white countries until the last 20 years. And suddenly, as migrants have come in, they have all sorts of huge problems. Try, try going to Malm, Sweden, okay? You don't want to go there. Um, so, so they just don't know what they're talking about. And, they, and they're, in essence, throwing the baby away with the bathwater. So to what is the biggest story for your, for your money right now in America? Is it the Chauvin case or is there another story that you think is the most troubling one? Well, I, I would say we are in the midst of a cultural revolution. It's just obvious and depressing. And the, it is the reality right now. Will enough Americans stand up to save America? Or has America just been sold off piece by piece over decades through bad ideas and and partly because of you know China's influence and, and a whole bunch of other things and, and a really evil, twisted corporate media, has America been stripped so bare that whoever would have stood up for it will no longer stand up for it? I'll stand up for it. I know Glenn Beck will stand up for it. There are some people that will stand up for it. And again, Ron DeSantis in Florida is showing how you can be a competent executive of your state, which is part of federalism, one of the brilliant ideas that our founders had. So... The, the issue is not necessarily the George Floyd trial or Antifa burning the streets or any of those specific things. Those things just sit under. We are in the midst of a battle for, excuse me, in, in a battle for America's soul. And I, I don't know which way it's going to go. I know which way I'm going to keep fighting, but I don't think anyone knows right now. And we don't seem to have a, we don't have a lot of trusted names anymore. Where is the intellectual elite? Well, the left destroyed all of them. Where are our trusted journalists? They basically don't exist. So now a, a bunch of YouTubers and podcasters are trying to save the country. That's a pretty freaking weird thing and not a position I would have ever found myself, thought I would have found myself in 20 years ago. Absolutely. So this is the one thing I think where you have a, a big role to play or have the opportunity to play a big role. Because, you know, for me, you know, I've always been, and I, I hate using the word labels of, you know, I'm conservative or I'm, because especially over here, like, because, you know, if you say, you know, because people have asked me recently, are you a liberal? I kind of go, in an American sense or in a <laughs> European sense? Because, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's very confusing. I got asked this question. I actually yeah. went on a crazy monologue last week. I got asked, was I a Republican? Because I'm doing a speaking tour later in the year. And, you know, if you're not a Republican, you can't speak in certain places. Kind of go, that even has certain meanings to an Irishman, you know, a Republican in an American sense, in an Irish political sure. sense, or in an Irish terrorist, you know, because words just can be mean so many different things to people. But you've taken this journey. Um, but I've always been more of a freedom guy. I've always been the, a constitution. Like, I fell in love with your constitution when I first read it. I was like, this, because I was the kid who was like, that does that isn't right in my country. And I was the annoying kid who's like, that doesn't right, that isn't right, that isn't right, that isn't right. And I was like, okay, well, what is right? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't I can't give you the answer. Then I yeah. found your founding documents. I was like, now let me tell you. And everyone was like, we don't want to know. <laughs> we don't want to know the answers. But how can we talk to people and sort of say, hey, 
you know, look, uh, that's, I'm not going to try and get you to vote for Trump or vote for Republican. Just, hey, look, this is the story. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about, because one of the troubling things for me about the, if you want to talk about the Chauvin case was how we've just sort of just ridden, ridden away the Fifth Amendment. You know, well, mm -hmm. he was guilty. Okay, yes, that may be so. Let's say he is as guilty as sin. Okay, first of all, he has a right to defense. Oh, well, why? He's guilty. Do you understand why, you know, understand what your founders went through that where, you know, they were in, you know, courts where we're 25 miles away and the judge was, you know, got a fee if he ruled against you. There's a reason your Fifth Amendment came and we don't seem to want to talk about that. So how do we reach out to people, break down those barriers that you you did in yourself and uh, with others and sort of make, make the story for America's case? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and relating it to the George Floyd case particularly is, is important because, you know, just the day before the verdict, Joe Biden was saying that he prays for the verdict that he wants. Yeah. So that's very dangerous. The head of the executive branch of government basically saying he's praying for a certain thing to happen, not having anything to do with the specifics of the case or whatever the medical experts might have said or anything else. Now, again, I'm actually basically fine with the verdict from what I understand. Uh, there, there absolutely was some negligence there. He, you know, George Floyd did have three times the amount of fentanyl that should kill a person and a whole bunch of other stuff. We could debate all of that, but your, your broader point is we are throwing away due process. We are sort of going to mob justice, which kind of makes sense in a world that is filled by mobs out on the street and Twitter mobs. So when you see Maxine Waters out on the street, Congresswoman from California, the day before the verdict, talking about stay out here and stay angry and the rest of it. And when the state, I believe it was the state of Minnesota before, it was either the state of Minnesota or the city of Minneapolis, I'm, I'm blanking on which, paid out the George Floyd family $27 million before the case had even been decided. So in many ways, we are just removing due process. It does not matter. If you see someone, if, if there is clear video of a person with their hands up, don't shoot, I have no weapons, I'm innocent, blah, 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 and someone shoots them in the head, you still must have a trial. You must, as a civil society, you must have a process to allow for something related to justice in the true sense, not the justice that these guys are bringing, because they want mob justice. They want mob justice. And also, they want to burn it all down. And if you don't think that's true, I mean, immediately after the verdict, they got what they wanted, right? They got the conviction they wanted. Well, first off, they still burn down cities. They still are fighting and burning things down. But if you listen to what AOC said and the attorney general of uh, Minnesota, who's, I think, a true radical, Keith Ellison, and you listen to Ilhan Omar, they're all saying, well, this is just a step in the process. This is just a step in the process. We got one win, but you know, we're coming for the whole thing. They're telling you they're here to upend the system. And this gets us back to what I said earlier, which is, the question is, will there be enough good people who will be brave enough to stand up for the greatest political system of all time? And I, I still think the jury's out on that. Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, read from Reed, I've, you know, as someone who's read a lot of your history and loves it, is we seem to have forgotten, and, and especially as a culture, uh, from your reference, why Martin Luther King and Malcolm X lost. 
you know, there's this understanding. You finished up your show the other day with, with a great quote from Martin Luther King, you know, only light can, only darkness can't defeat darkness, only light can, and only uh, hate can't defeat hate, only love can. But the understanding of the optics where, like, the reason Martin Luther King won, as someone who wasn't there and obviously wasn't born at the time, was where Malcolm X was preaching, get Whitey here, he has something you have, let's take it, we want it. And all the Whitey are like, we may not be racist, but we're not dealing with that. And Martin Luther King's walking arm in arm in Selma. And, it, you know, how can you say that they did it? And, like, the proof, again, is in the pudding. You know, I always use the numbers, and I love numbers in history, is, you know, the proof that America wasn't a racist nation was 25%. I don't know if you know what that means, but 25% of the people who turned up to the mall to listen to his famous I Have a Dream speech were not black. So yeah. if... It's, it's all about sharing that message that it's not about black versus white or rich versus poor or you, you're Irish versus American or any of this. It's all about encapsulating the American story and sort of getting people involved. And that's why so many people went to listen to, you know, a black pastor speak about black civil rights when you're white. Why would you do that? Because it's America's story. And I think if we can get that story, because it has to, to be a story as well. It's, you know, it can't be just about the facts and, well, you have to love this and you must love them. We have to touch people's hearts. That's how you, you defeat racism. That's how Martin Luther King did it. How do we get back to that point? Yeah, well, you're right about stories. We, we need stories. You need grand narratives to, to make people see that star in the distance, that things can be better. You know, the irony of what's happening now with Martin Luther King's legacy is that they're going to tear down his statues. Mark my words. If these people keep attaining power, he will be thought of as a co-conspirator because he didn't want his children to be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, except that's the reverse of what BLM wants. That, that's what they're telling us. They, they are telling us that. And in essence, that's what the Democrats are now telling us. So Martin Luther King will be looked back as some sort of sell out kind of, you know, played with the bad guys, never got the accomplishments that we wanted to get, never won us much of anything. That's what he'll be thought of. And I guarantee you they will take down his statues because he will not have been radical enough for them. And that, of course, is the irony of what the left does with everything. The progressives of tomorrow are destined to hate the progressives of today. Do you think that the progressives of 2040 are going to look back at Barack Obama with his drone strikes and gay marriage. Yeah, no, they already in Chicago, they were going to name a school after him. And uh, they already took took that away. They're not going to do that because he was anti-immigration. So it is a movement of destruction. And, and really, the question is, how much destruction can they cause as they destroy themselves? And and again, that's why I always bring everything back on my show. I try to bring as much back as possible to local because if you figure out, if you can figure out, well, how do I live the best life for myself? Thus, the best life for my family, which then hopefully has something to do with my local community and the people around me and things like that. Then you have a chance to fix some stuff. If you're always pointing to the federal government going, that's the thing that's got to fix all of us, that thing can't fix anything. The idea that Joe Biden at 78 years old, obviously with dementia, is going to fix anything, even though he forgot to fix all of it for his first 47 years in office, somehow didn't do any of it. He was also vice president for eight years. Him and Barack, I guess they forgot to fix the racism thing. Um, the idea that they're going to fix anything is completely ridiculous. Absolutely. And I always stress this on the show, which I know you'll know, the president has no power. You know, that's the well, first thing we need, you know, if you go from the Constitution. I know you've right. got to run by. I just have one last yeah. question for you. One sure. of the things I love about you is, because I admire you, because one of my frustrations with my friends on the right is, we always love to complain. Oh, I hate Facebook. Oh, I hate YouTube. Oh, they suck. Fascist book. 
And what I've been saying to people, look, you know, we're supposed to be the free market people. We're supposed to be the innovators. Why can't we out-innovate Mark Zuckerberg or the creator of YouTube or Twitter or whatever platform that you want? And you've done that. You've, so I'd love you to tell people about your project, The Locals, because I've actually just joined it. I can't wait to start using it. So, what you know, that's one of the things. And you've raised, was it, $3.8 million this week you announced on Tuesday? Yeah, we just so, we just raised a bunch of money from a, from a bunch of key Silicon Valley people that are not only investors, but true innovators. David Sachs, who is the former COO of PayPal, and uh, Naval and Balaji and Joe Alonzo, these are a couple of names that, that people might know that are really, really true, truly outside the box thinkers that are going to help us beyond just the dollars. You know, you need the dollars to hire the programmers, but then you need people who can really think about things. How do we create decentralized storage? How do we get off all the just the usual payment processors? How do we solve all of the censorship problems that we all know are coming? I mean, look, the reason I did it really was because nobody else did. I kept saying, I don't understand this, guys. You know, even when when my show was really blowing up and that whole intellectual dark web thing was happening, we were all talking about censorship. We were all talking about big tech. We're talking about centralized power. We're talking about free speech. And I kept thinking, well, where is everybody? Why don't why doesn't somebody do this? And then when I started coming. Yeah, well, I started coming around with the idea. And then it's basically Homer Simpson. You know, I'm a guy like me. That's what I realized. I was like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I guess a guy like Dave Rubin should do it. And I, well, I'm Dave Rubin. And and we started putting together some great tech and, uh, you know, raising money for for tech is not easy in general. But raising money for tech in a, in a crazy political space that we're in is really difficult. But I'm very proud of what we've built. And, and the essence, the idea of locals is that we build digital homes for creators. So your locals community you're going to have all your video there. You own it. You're going to have all your audio. You own it. You're going to have your user data. You own it. These are things that YouTube does not give you. Uh, you're going to have a slick app and push notifications and live chat. We have live video streaming coming. You'll be able to communicate with all of your people. And and it's a home. So we build you the home. And guess what? You're going to set the rules in your home. If you want people to come in and say awful things to you, that's fine. But if you don't, you can kick them out of your home but they can still be in anyone else's locals community. So there's no deplatforming in that sense. So I think we've solved probably 95% of the problems for 95% of the people. Uh, and if people want to check out more, they can go to locals.com, see what we're building. And if you want to see my community specifically, it's rubenreport.locals.com. And you can really see just incredible interaction in there. People talking about ideas without attacking each other because there are no trolls and bots because it costs a couple bucks to get in, believe it or not. You know, paying for something actually makes people's behavior better. And uh, we, we've built something really nice. And I, I think we'll be a little dent in the armor of this thing. Hopefully a big dent. Listen, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Wow, what an interview that was. And again, thank you so much for today, Ruben, for joining us. Mark, I wanted to finish up today's show by just talking to you from the heart for a few minutes. Because there's certain things we need to discuss. You know, I don't have any notes for this, so if this is a bit uh, a bit off the rails, I apologize. But I'm just going to speak to you from the heart. Normally I do a lot of prep and I kind of think of what I want to talk to you about, but... There's been certain words that have been heavy on my heart this week, and I want to share them with you. We're going through a change. And this change right now, it, it's very painful. It's very frustrating. It's very hurtful. 
if you look around in your country, if you have the wrong opinion, you're a racist, you're a hater, you're a Nazi. You know all the insults. You get called them every day if you have the wrong opinion. One of the things I've realized over the last couple of weeks is that something I have been saying for seven years is fundamentally flawed. And it's not that it was wrong or that I don't stand by the advice or the stuff I've talked about for seven years. But we're in a different time now. You know, for seven years I've said to you, there is not one problem your country faces that your people can't fix. I think we've passed that. Because we talk about, you know, if you follow the Constitution, a lot of these problems go away. A lot of the, the governmental problems, you know, if the president has no power, he doesn't act as he has power, it solves a lot of problems. It solves executive orders. It's, it solves, you know, congressional overreach. It solves doing all these bills. If the Congress article follows Article 1, Section 8, if they follow that, that, you know, a lot of these big spending bills, these big governmental bills, these trillion dollar bailouts, they can't happen. Why? Because it's not constitutional. You know, if, they, if the states rose up, they, a lot of problems will be a lot sol easier solved because if they do something that's really bad, it's not like you have to go to D.C. You just go to your local state house. It's in your state. And these people are up for election. They have to have a more of a relationship with you. Like, just think about this in your state, whether you live in New York or Texas or California or Iowa, wherever you live, or Michigan. Just think about it. When was the last time your state senator or state representative was in your state? Probably a pretty long time. Your state rep, your state senator, is there all the time, or 99% of the time. You're easy, more accessible. And you can say, hey, don't do this. We don't like this. You can fight government overreach easier at the state level than you can at the federal level. As much as that is true, and I'm still going to be promoting that, our times have changed because one of the things that I spoke about with Dave is we have a problem in the heart. And we're now entering times where reason and logic for many people have left the building. So how, what do we do? How do we act? Well, first off, we need to still talk about the Constitution. We need to continue talking about America's values and America's narrative, which we will do on this show. But we also need to understand that there's a role for God. And that God is needed. If we are to save this world, we can't do it by ourselves. We need it. We always did, but we're now at a point where we need miracles. We need divine providence. We need to be the revolutionary soldiers in your war, fighting the British and losing and getting their asses whooped and then hoping and praying because we're doing the right thing that the French Navy shows up. That's something out of the blue, something that you couldn't have predicted, that you hope for maybe, but well, I don't know whether it's going to happen or not, that they turn up. The reason I wanted to share and talk to you today is because I know many of you are hurting. And so many people today, everyone on all sides wants to win. I think we need to change our mindsets. And the reason I say this is because I was reading a book this week, uh, doing research or something else I'm doing. And I remind, was reminded of a great story. And I want to share that story with you now to give you hope. 
So the Revolutionary War happens, you win. You're declared your independence from Britain. And everyone's in Philadelphia arguing about how, what should be in the Constitution, what shouldn't, what should we do as a nation, who should we be, what is America's narrative going to be? Are we going to be like the Avengers? Avengers? Uh -huh, uh -huh. No. Are we going to be like the English we be? Hell no. But human beings, being human beings, there was a lot of disagreements. And it was in absolute chaos. And you've heard me share this story before. It's about to break down. And George Washington is called for. He's sent for. You need to come and save the Constitutional Convention. And Mr. Washington in his first reaction is typical, which is so unlike man today. My God, what more does my country demand of me? I know there are many people who have been involved in the trenches in this battle for America's soul for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, who are tired, who are weak, who are, might listen to this and kind of go, my God, what more does John want me to do for my country? I get that tiredness and I get that frustration. I get it. But we're at the battle for our souls. You have to keep fighting because there is no other option. But George Washington rides to, to Philadelphia. And so many times today, if you imagine how George Washington, if he was a typical politician in 2021, he would have went and said, ah, oh, here I am. Here I am. Here's George. He would have tried to solve everything, right? He would have tried to get involved in everything. You, you idiots couldn't have solved this. You needed me. You arrogant fools thinking you could do this without George Washington. You needed me. Me, 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 me. Would have been on social media. Would have had a hashtag. George is going to sort and fix it all. That's not, actually, that's not cool enough. I'm not cool with all these trendy things. And, you know, George will fix it. So, you know, something like that. Some fancy hashtag. He would have had press releases. He was now, I made this statement and I made this speech. And why won't these people listen to me? I'm here to galvanize the troops. Said George Washington said nothing. If you read enough of the, the words of the papers of the founders, a lot of people describe them as the slow, steady, silent hand. Silent been the key word. But George Washington didn't just turn up in Philadelphia and be the, the slow, steady, silent hand and sit down and everyone's acted like the way they should. Everything wasn't sorted the minute he got there. It wasn't like George turned up and boom, we had the Constitution a day later. No, still people were arguing and disagreeing, arguing over lots of different issues, arguing over whether it should be a king or not, arguing over the role of government, arguing over different people. Lots of arguments. What was one of the first things George Washington said at the Philadelphia Confidential? Anyone know? You've probably heard this quote before. But I want you to picture it. All people arguing over different things in the Constitution. And George is silent in the corner saying nothing. Day after day. Hour after hour. Speaker after speaker. Until finally George Washington gets up. And says the following words. 
which I think are absolutely key for every American to hear. What are those words? Let us raise to a standard which the wise and honest can repair. The rest is in the hands of God. I don't know whether we will ever live in a world where America is the shiny city on a hill that you used to be. I don't think it, I'm not ruling it out. I don't think history is written in the sense of it'll never happen. But I don't know whether it'll happen in my lifetime. If you read enough world history, when this type of tyranny comes knocking on the door, it usually lasts 80 years. If it's that to continue that trend, that 80 years will see a lot of us out. Unless, of course, technology advances so much and we all live to 200, which, eh, I don't know, maybe. It sounds good sometimes and other times, kind of, I don't really want to see 200 years in this world. That would just be painful. But it will see us out. I think we need to start making the case at a more local level. We need to start sharing America's narrative. We need to forget about what the media are saying. We need to forget about what the politicians are saying. We need to forget about the political parties and just start making bonds and connections with people. And let us not try to win. Let us not try to, to squash everyone, but let us try and raise to a standard to which the wise and the honest can repair. Because I don't know whether we will get to a point where we will be the people to repair it. But what we can do is ensure that no more water comes on board and ensure that we raise our kids and our grandkids up and ensure that they know the real American narrative to realize, to understand that maybe we don't get to see real freedom again in our, for our lives. Hopefully that's not true, but maybe we don't, but that we have that sacrifice and understanding that, hey, Maybe we don't see it, but I'm sure with our work, our kids will see it and our grandkids will see it. We need to start humbling ourselves before God. We need to stop worrying about pointing the figure at other people. Oh, they're not a real Republican. They're not a real libertarian. They're not a real conservative. Oh, they're lefty. Oh, they're, they're doomed to hell. And we need to start having conversations and making the case. Because if we don't, we are over. It's done. I can't tell you what the outcomes of all this is going to be. I can only give you one guaranteed outcome, is if you do nothing. If you do nothing and everyone follows your lead, we lose. It's time to stop, like Dave Rubin said about him, it's time to stop looking around at everyone else. And I include myself in this. I include myself in this because for so long, my attitude has changed because for so long, I was said, ah, it's not the job of an Irishman to save America. You know, that's Glenn Beck's job. That's Dave Rubin's job. That's Ben Shapiro's job. They have bigger audiences than I do. They, they're more well-known. They're there. Oh, I'm only in Ireland. I can only do so much. I, I can only, hey, I'm in Ireland. I'm 6,000 miles away. It's not my country. I can only do so much. The rules have changed. The game has changed. The times have shifted. We need to start looking in ourselves to see what we can do. We need to start humbling ourselves and living and being men of honor, which your founders spoke about. Being men of sacred honor. 
because honor is sacred. We need to start being those men, not telling people to live those lives, not preaching those lives, but living those lives. And bit by bit, we will make a difference. Because guess what? If you are in a world right now, which we're in, where we're in a crisis of the heart, where hate, everyone has been told to hate everyone. Only one thing defeats that, and that's love. We are in dark times, but we will overcome them. We must overcome them. But we also must understand it's not just up to us right now. We need his help. And we need to look inward and kind of go, am I living a life that would give him encouragement to say, hey, there's John. There's Jonathan. Yeah, he's living a life. We should give him some help. I know at times I don't. I know at times I struggle with my faith a lot. But we need to start growing. Growing as individuals and growing as communities. And start living the life that they lead by following your founder's example and making an even better America. Because I told you this, and I've been telling you this, and I've told you this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to keep telling you this going forward. If you want an encouragement, understand America's history and your culture. America always loves the great comeback story. I think it's about time we started putting down the roots and we started planting seeds for America's greatest ever comeback. And we need to start doing that. Not at who's president, not at who's Congress. That's important. Yes, vote and vote ever how you see fit. But the work goes so much deeper. Because they're telling the world, you're racist, you're Nazis, you're haters, you're despicable people. We need to live a life that says, who, him? No, they're not. I know them. I may disagree with them. I may think they're the biggest moron in the world for voting for Donald Trump. But they're a good person. I, I'm happy to be their neighbor. They help me and I help them. Or I go to church with them and they go to church with me. Again, I think they voted like an idiot, but I still love them. Make it impossible for them to paint you as a Nazi, as a racist, as a hater. Because love always wins. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And to everyone who's tuned in from day one or all along this journey for everything that you've done for me. I truly, when I say this, mean it. You guys are the reason I keep going. My interactions with you, you've been through a journey with me, through the highs of getting a job with Glenn, through the lows of all that, through my, my mental health issues, which I still have. But you guys check up on me. You guys, I love engaging with you. I love discussing issues with you. I've been a bit behind the correspondence in the last 10 days because there's been a lot of personal stuff going on, which I won't bore you with. But you guys are the reason I keep going. The reason I turn up every Saturday to do this show, even when I'm feeling crap, even when I'm wanting to quit life, it's because of each and every one of you. You guys made a difference in my life. And I try and make a difference, even the smallest bit of difference in your life. And we're going to keep going for another 100 shows, another 200 shows, another 300 shows. We're looking forward. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. God bless. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.